Welcome to the Wonder Learn Podcast. This is your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I talk to Rafina Garay. It is part four of six episodes. That's right. Originally, I was expecting to do only four, but now we're opening it to six episodes with Rafina. In this episode, we talk about whether farmers markets are scams. We also talk about the food that we grew up with, what we ate, and what made me resilient during the pandemic. Then we have an ad with Expedia, and then ultimately I take an excerpt, and this is where it gets interesting, an excerpt from KQED's forum, where a woman is talking about injustice in the food industry. And Rafina and I debate whether the food industry is in for a reckoning. And I end with an afterword at the end of the podcast where I give some additional thoughts on that issue that I just forgot to mention in the podcast. I hope you like it. Enjoyed this episode with Rafina Garay. There have been articles written, plenty of articles written. In fact, I can send them to you if you're not aware of them, that say that certain vendors at farmers markets are not quote unquote legitimate in the sense that they'll do things like buy food at grocery stores and just bring them over there. Mm. Or they're, they're not local. They're not local. All sorts of basically mm. quote unquote scams. If you just Google far, farmers market, yeah. either scam and that kind of stuff. And so how mm. do you distinguish? Do you ever worry about that? Think about that when you go around? I don't hear um, mainly because I, I was a board member for the Jefferson County farmers market previously and um, there are standards in place, like policies as to who can be a vendor and the, you know, there's even like a scoring matrix uh, on those things. And we do in this area, we have typically required people to, you know, disclose h- how they're making their products in the sense that are, are there incorporated products from other people? Are you making it yourself? Or are you just repackaging somebody else's product? Okay. So do I you think, think that most people have those kind of oversight as you have? Maybe not. I, I think farmers markets are kind of in a revival of sorts, particularly post pandemic, mm-hmm. when the supply chain got disrupted uh, for meat products. Even uh, more people were turning to their local uh, farmers markets to to obtain them. And you know, there's often a premium paid in the local farmers market for meat and poultry products because of what it takes to to raise them and care for them. And I think those are legitimate things that we should be supporting to support agrarian um, economies. And I, I think that if we can avoid having that, I guess, you know, fraud in the farmer's market, that's, that's really important. And it would be nice if across the country people were, you know, instituting these kinds of standards around how they accept market vendor applications I haven't seen that really in in the markets that I've shopped. So I've shopped the markets in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, Port Washington, Wisconsin, you know, smaller places, Madison, Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin has like a beautiful farmer's market. I couldn't tell you if, you know, that that is at such a large scale, Madison, Wisconsin, um, and even Union Square Market in uh, Manhattan. Those are at such large scales. But when you walk, when you walk it, you can see the produce, generally speaking, you'll know that that's from a farm. Like you'll see the dirt still on some of it. You can see the dirt under the fingers of the vendor. But when it comes to the prepared products, it's a little bit harder to tell. So that's really about the due diligence of the people who are monitoring the applications. And, you know, I, I, I think people want to know the traceability of their food more and more so. But more people need to be educated about that as being a positive thing um, that you would want to know. You know, when we have these crisis 
crises of consumption where you have spinach having E. coli and moving around the country and not knowing exactly how it happened until, you know, the research and investigation is done post-mortem for some people. That that's when you realize traceability really matters, right? We need to know where it came from in order to stop the the problem. So I think farmers markets for me feel like a really holistic way of getting great fresh food that, you know, in terms of quality, usually does better than the stuff you get in the grocery stores. Fair enough. All right. Shoot next question. Yeah. So yeah. So so tell me. Yeah, I'm curious about this because you have such a rich history. Your mother was Chilean, is that right? Yes. And your father was French. Correct. I'm wondering how that showed up at the dinner table and whether you have, you know, food and memory entangled together from from some of your experiences in the home. You know, it's an interesting question. Um, my mom, she cooked all the time. My dad never cooked. And so whatever culinary influence came from Chile... I remember asking my mom at the age of 22, like, why haven't you never given me peanut butter? And she said, because I didn't like it. (laughs) I discovered peanut butter at Amherst College. And she was just like, I just didn't like it. So I'm not going to serve you something I don't like. And so I never discovered peanut butter until I was like 20. Over time, my mom became more and more vegetarian. She she let up more and more on the salt because I think my dad had a high blood pressure or something like that. So Uh he had to reduce the, the, the amount of salt that she put in. And she became more and more vegetarian. The, the portions of meat and everything and, and, and animal products became less and less over time. And so that was the evolution. What about you? For me, yeah, food is definitely entangled with memory. I, I grew up mostly with Filipino and American cuisine, mm-hmm. what my parents understood of American cuisine, which ended up being kind of distorted at times. You know, like it's a strange thing. What, you put that- like pineapple on your pizza? No, I, I, I don't do that, <laughs> but my, the rest of my family will. Um, no, it showed up in distortions where products were misunderstood or not understood, right? So, so like we were able to convince my parents, for example, that Twinkies were a breakfast food because they really didn't understand what they were. Right. And so we went through a stretch probably like in the first, first to second grade where we were like, yeah, you know, you allow you know, in the Philippines, sometimes people have cake for breakfast, but mm. when they're having cake for breakfast, it's made out of ube, which is like a root vegetable, you know? <laughs> so it's a different kind of right. cake right, um, right. and or babinka, which, you know, has coconut milk and some other things and it's high, cal- you know, high caloric food, but you're going to burn you it off. Can you buy a Twinkie anymore? I think you can. I've, I know I've seen the Hostess cupcakes, right? Okay. Which was a close second yeah, to yeah, the yeah. Twinkie, yeah. but so so things like that got distorted, but, you know, a, a traditional thing that we would eat would be a chicken adobo, which, you know, you're seeing that image kind of float around on Instagram and people have given their different takes on it with uh, people wanting to cook more Asian dishes in a time in response to some of the anti-Asian violence. But I would say that for me, the Filipino tradition of gathering and eating food together is one of the most fabulous traditions because time is given for storytelling and for um, catching up with people whom you might not have seen, whether it's for several weeks or a month or whatnot. And there's so much joy in it, uh, so much joy in the eating, so much, you know, lingering, lingering that happens. And I, I would say that I, I sort of miss that aspect of um, sharing food. I think, you know, the pandemic has made it difficult to gather. And then, you know, as a society, we've gotten so trapped by the scheduling of things 
that carving out big chunks of time to have those kind of larger gatherings and, um, you know, just to simply talk and eat. Like most of the time these days, people are talking, eating, working and texting all at the same time. And so the latter two take away from the other two. And, and to me, that's, you know, that's sort of a loss on our part. I think there's something about culture and, you know, the social fabric of, of American society that we're missing out on. The faster our food systems get, you know, the, the more we demand immediacy and, you know, spontaneous fulfillment of our food needs, the, the less we're kind of appreciating and taking things slow. I think it's one of the reasons why when slow food became a thing, you know, there were people who were ready to take that on and make that part of how they want to exist in the world. Right. So, and, and for people who don't know Slow Food, it's it's really an organization that was started by um, a man named Petrini uh, close to uh, Torino. And it was in response to fast food, right. right? Hitting Italy and and trying to kind of stave off that taking over the culture because they'd seen what it had done yeah. in the U.S., yeah. So, so taking, you know, a slow approach, I think is something that I'm in favor of. And, and when I think of my memories, like I don't have a lot of fast food memories. The only thing that I will say, you know, in contradiction to that is sports games, being a cheerleader as a, a grade school student, we used to go out for, you know, fast food afterwards. And that was kind of fun. And, and that's an immediate thing that you can do with people. So there's a place for all of it. You know, there's a, definitely a place for all of it. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's definitely one thing that separates American culture from a lot of other cultures, although we are infecting the rest of the world, is that in most of the other mm-hmm. cultures in the world, food is a family affair and certain, or social mm-hmm. affair versus Americans are probably the least social social eaters, <laughs> if you will. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, mm-hmm. but I'm glad there's a slow food movement to kind of counteract that. Next question. Mm-hmm. What has made you resilient through the pandemic and the lockdown when travel was restricted? I'm just curious about that just generally. I know it's like a non sequitur, but I just think there's so much of what you talk about in terms of uh, transformation and travel and in your TEDx talks, you know, there's a lot of education you're offering to people um, who are ready to hear it and to think differently about their travels. And I feel like you're opening people's eyes to what can be learned in these moments of connection with other people. And I can imagine that in the pandemic, you know, there was just less connection possible, right? Less travel possible. And, and I just want to know, you've always struck me as somebody who's highly resilient and highly extroverting. So what did you do for yourself? I mean, you know, what, did you do different kinds of hiking or what did you do? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so just like you, Rafina, I'm an extrovert and mm-hmm. I find that it's actually social media, one of the blessings, I suppose, of it is that it is a good substitute, uh, maybe not a good substitute, but it's certainly a substitute for real life interaction. If you think about it, mm-hmm. imagine how it would be in the 1920 epidemic where the Spanish flu broke out and then you really had to isolate and you really, mm-hmm. you know, like, it was so different. Here, at least yeah. you can have, a, you and I are right now talking and we're nowhere near each other. Yeah. I mean, And right. yet it yeah. feels like we're there. And so- it's so much easier to isolate yourself. I realize Zoom is not the same. I understand that, but mm-hmm. it it's a lot easier. And, and also just social media. There's a lot of people that on Facebook, 
I feel like I'm following their life, even though we're not, we haven't seen each other for 20 years. I, you know, we're, uh-huh. I comment on their stuff. They comment on my stuff, whatever. There's a certain level of interaction. So, and also in my case, during the pandemic, I had to write my book about Africa. So traveling to all 54 African countries. And so I needed a, a bit of isolation anyway. And so in that sense, it was good for me. How about you? How, how did you deal with the pandemic? Was it really rough? Initially, it was actually quite a blessing to have more time with my family sure. in lockdown together. Yeah, yeah. So so I would say that I was able to give more time and attention, particularly to my son. Right. And what was interesting to me, like I, I was invited to join a particular artist group um, locally, which has, you know, a handful of professional artist women. And I had not given myself the space or the time to to do art uh, for such a long time. And it, it made such a difference because, you know, I consider myself, I only recently had words for it um, that I, I gained through a, a woman who was a, a culinary professional, part of the IACP. She called herself a multi-creative. And I thought, ah, oh, there it is. That's the word that I've needed because I enjoy doing different creative things but I had been um, spending a lot of my time working using, you know, strategy and intellect and and logic, right, um, having practiced law. So um, giving myself that time to create balance in my life um, and, and do some artwork, that was really great. Like, I, I don't know if I can show you, like, you know, that drawing behind me is one that I did back in law school, you know, and that one too, I think I did in law school. And some of those things, <laughs> it's kind of strange to show you, but I, I started doing um, some paintings based off of poetry and learning to kind of grapple with some of our societal challenges around opening up this Pandora's box of examining racism and looking at belonging mm-hmm. at a deep level, creating the space for doing that as well. That was such a opening as opposed to a restriction that the process of creating art became a mode of resilience and the ability to spend more time cooking for each other at home also offered like this refuge almost, uh, a return to actively cooking and creating. That, That to me was such a blessing. And there were so many things that were difficult about it, you know, knowing that so many people were suffering in the pandemic um, became something that like, I, I felt a need to do something about. So I joined a group of people meeting by Zoom and we served as the, the county's um, food system resiliency task force, whereby we, we kind of made recommendations to the county commission around how to use money that came in from the Federal CARES Act. And so at the time I was serving as a board member for the farmer's market, and we knew we had this SNAP match program that could basically give dollars for spending at the farmer's market. So in in two ways, it really helped people. One, it helped people who needed more funds to buy food, uh, you know, because we had widespread layoffs. And then um, it helped the farmers, right, sustain their livelihoods because it was a crippling effect for many of them with, you know, the lack of people attending the farmer's markets. Like we really had just like such a big decrease in the number of people attending until we got our rhythm around how to distance appropriately and set up the sort of public health standards of operation. So, so the resilience came out of serving other people in, in ways that were meaningful to me and aligned with my values. Fair enough. No, it's great that you got that. 
I'd like to take a minute to tell you about another podcast I think you'll enjoy. If I've learned anything about you, it's that you want real talk about the world around you. That's why I think you'll like the podcast Out Travel the System, brought to you by Expedia. It's taking a transparent look at what it's like to travel these days, whether it's through stories from people who have continued cautiously traveling through the pandemic or by staying tuned to the very latest news from the industry. OutTravel the System is backed by a solid foundation of data from Expedia, which means it can guide listeners through the best ways to maximize their travel budgets. The podcast is providing inspiration by talking to people who have made travel a central part of their lives, from professional travel bloggers to travel journalists and beyond. This season features U.S. destinations like Chicago, Boston, and New York, as well as international locations like Spain and France. The episodes will guide you through when to go, where to stay, what to do, and everything else you need to know. Look for Out Travel the System on your favorite podcast platform and like and subscribe now. We're going to play a short clip right now of the forum podcast on KQED. The restaurant industry prior to the pandemic was the nation's largest, one of the largest, second largest, in fact, and absolute fastest growing private sector employers, nearly 14 million workers prior to the pandemic. But it's been the absolute lowest paying employer for generations, actually, since emancipation of slavery, when the whole structure of wages and tipping in this country was birthed at, at emancipation. It's a direct legacy of slavery, the low wages in this industry and the way in which tips have replaced wages. And so to me, the more, the more that I've worked on this issue for the last 20 years, the more I learn, the more uh, we organize, the, the more we understand that really this industry is the epitome of, frankly, racialized capitalism in the United States. The, le the legacy of slavery that exists in the way that wages in our economy are structured, frankly, unfortunately, the ways in which corporations control our democracy and the way people are paid and treated. Um, it's a very gendered issue, given that the vast majority of tipped workers in the U.S. are women. It's a very racialized issue, not just because of the legacy of slavery, but the way in which, unfortunately, tips reflect our biases as Americans. And so to me, it is uh, the epitome of what is really at the root of the structural problems we need to address in this country, the intersections of race, capitalism, and gender that have resulted in severe inequities that, that are resulting in right now as we emerge from this pandemic, frankly, our inability to fully recover. We are not going to see the restaurant industry that we had prior to the pandemic come back. Um, in the way it was, unless we address these issues, because frankly, in this moment, workers are not willing to go back to the industry that was there before. She talked about how the food industry is in for a reckoning. What do you yeah. think about what she said, Rufina? I think she's right about the reckoning having to happen, right, to sort of bring ourselves back into alignment, because we're... We're recognizing, um, you know, after the pandemic, how stretched thinly the industry is and how incapacitated restaurants and the food industry 
are to meet the needs for a sustainable livelihood with healthcare to to provide to their workers. And I think that she's right. We are going to experience a shrinkage. We're going to experience a shrinkage for a couple different reasons. The pandemic really made it difficult for some restaurants. Like the the margins are so thin in that industry, right? Especially like in in um, the state of Washington, the minimum age wage went up. And once that happened, right, things shifted in the business models of many restaurants. And so coming into the pandemic, people were trying to make that pivot in the first place to absorb the costs of that increase in personnel wages. And then when the pandemic hit, right, the cost of operation to pivot with all the different needs and with the lower number of headcount in the restaurants, it, it became crippling to some restaurants. And so without like the f- federal monies to kind of, you know, kind of subsidize this time period, it really put a lot of, you know, people in jeopardy in that industry. So we're going to see shrinkage no matter what. And the expectation that she talks about to expect less restaurants because they're, because of the need to kind of give greater quality to, you know, what's provided to the essential workers I think that's possible, but I think where she's a little bit mistaken is in thinking that it's going to be like this grassroots effort. And maybe I misunderstood that from the podcast, but the way she was talking, I sort of felt like she was thinking, you know, there'll there'll be this like proletarian uprising from the ranks of line cooks and prep cooks. It's just not going to happen because as people are vaccinated, the people on the line have to live their lives. And it's, it's kind of triage, right? Paycheck to paycheck. If for a lot of people without healthcare in most cases. And, you know, the, the, that whole cycle, right? It's not a virtuous cycle. Like if people are really essential, why don't we treat them that way? So, you know, it's really important for people in government and in politics, people with law degrees, um, legislators, all these people to focus on the problem together. Even the farmers, like we can create a virtuous cycle, we, we can actually create a system that works for everybody, but we have to want to do it. And to be honest, I just don't think there's enough uh, power in listening. Like the people who have the decision-making authority, who can create the right kinds of laws to support the health and well-being and, and the sustainability of the livelihood of an essential worker, they, they have to be the ones to be advocating too. Because right now, like if I just think about the practicality of it, you know, when I, when I go into a restaurant, like I enjoy getting to know the server. I enjoy, like, I believe in tipping, right? I believe in these kinds of things. Um, and not everybody does. People are transactional. People are, uh, you know, they want what they want when they want it. And they don't necessarily see, see the importance of the connection with the person, who's who's doing the service who's in the back of the house mm. and and for me like that's a miss like that's a miss in the wholeness of the system and i think the more people can see what they've seen in the pandemic like how hard this industry works how difficult it was to pivot in the pandemic and how they made it happen right like that's an expression in in most kitchens like make it happen Right. Whatever we need to have go out, we're going to get it out. We're going to get it out on time, barring, you know, uncertain circumstances. But like you really saw people rise to the occasion and go beyond 
what would be necessary and, and to almost take like a, a military format to like the need to feed people. Yes, I hope that people like her begin to recognize the importance of addressing this problem. I don't think anybody would have done anything about it before the pandemic because people were comfortable. It's only in the pandemic that people began to feel uncomfortable, especially the people who forgot how to cook for themselves, right? Like the fewer restaurants were open to them. Like they couldn't get the variety of things they wanted. They had supply chain problems. So I I hope that the discomfort of that moment has not passed for people so that enough focus can be given to that. But at the government level, I would say I was really ticked off, you know, when they set up the restaurant council, right? Like Wolfgang Puck and, uh, you know, uh, French Law Laundry's Thomas Keller called up the president and said, we want to have a talk with you, right? There's a problem in the industry. When they set up this restaurant council, largely it was all male, right? I think towards the, you know, the last iteration of it, they added one female, they added one person of color, they didn't add any Asians, which kind of <laughs> shocked me given how popular Chinese cuisine is. And because there are some leading thinkers out there. Um, David Chang of Momofuku, I think, has a lot of really good ideas. I think they should have added, I think his name is Nikolai from Alinea, who he's a master of finance and really helped Alinea pivot in the pandemic. And I think his model that they used there could um, be replicated everywhere. And so I'm hoping to have him as a podcast guest at some point. But there are people thinking differently now about food and thinking about food and community and how one can create models that support everyone in the system. And it's not communist. You know, it's still about making making profit, but it's about having a model that is designed and intended to support the health and longevity of both the industry and the people whom the industry serves. I'm glad that you didn't agree with everything that she said, because I also didn't see as the workers of the food necessarily being the worst off ever, because I just think of my cousin who was a chef. He had, he created three restaurants and mm. eventually he decided to just be a server, you know, a waiter yeah. because he was like, uh-huh. I make more money yeah. serving he he worked at the mm-hmm. Ritz Carlton, the Four Seasons, or whatever the hell he oh, did. Anyway, sure. he, but he made more yeah. money as a server as he did as mm-hmm. a chef. And yeah. and she also makes a point about you know the low wage. I think the minimum wage is maybe three dollars an hour or whatever it is for for. Mm-hmm. But of course they make money in tips, and so what really matters is your total take home pay. And I just mm-hmm. know that waiters. Yes, it's a very tough job. You're on your feet. It's mm-hmm. very customer service oriented. It's high stress. On and on and on. But it's definitely not the bottom of the barrel when it comes to money that you can make. I, I don't know how much janitors make in comparison or other mm-hmm. people, and maybe the people who are picking the the fruits off, you know, the, the oranges. I imagine they're making mm-hmm. a lot less. Anyway, yeah. waiters, there there's a lot of people who are below waiters as far as total take-home mm-hmm. income. Not that mm-hmm. their waiters are getting yeah. super highly paid, but anyway. Yeah. Uh yeah, but and I guess there's she's a talking about the whole between front of the house and back of the house. Yeah, right. yeah, she is. She's and just... and when you look at back of the house wages, you know they're they're you know not in my mind with the cost of healthcare. But here's the thing, um, and the absence of it, it's it's not sustainable. But Rafina, what she said is, you know, be prepared for if we don't make these reforms, if we don't like start paying food workers a lot more money and 
giving, I mean, that's basically comes down to what she's saying. If we don't do that, expect to see a lot fewer restaurants and a lot, you know, da, 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 da. Okay. But here's my, my other contention is, okay, let's just say that we do adopt all her measures and we double the salaries of everybody out there and we double the compensation of everybody out there. Well, you're also going to see half the restaurants. The restaurants are going yes. to go away anyway because nobody's going to yeah. be able to afford to go out. <laughs> right, right. So, so yeah, it right. just seems or, like it's or doom or gloom either way. It. <laughs> it could be. It could be, definitely. I, You know, I think there are different innovative ways to think about it. And, and part of it, one of the, the bright spots of the pandemic is some restaurants really thrived and they made more money than they normally made because they weren't, it was all takeout. And so then you increase the number of customers you serve in the amount of time that you have right. with the same set of personnel. Right. So when you're talking about business models, that aspect can kind of save certain restaurant operations. And and I think you'll see that some restaurants won't go back to having people linger quite as much. So I, I think you're going to see a different... Yeah. landscape of restaurants. The people who are really screwed are the four or five star restaurants. Those guys are the ones who can't do like takeout. You can't like go to some yeah. super expensive place and say, Hey, I want to do takeout. Well, I mean, well, you can, but it's Alinea. I, I think Alinea is one of those um, restaurants that, di- that did do but, something different. But like I imagine that. that they're just not raking in the money as they used to, I'm guessing. Maybe yeah, I'm I won't know until I talk to Nicolas. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. Because I mean, to I me, the, the experience of you know spending five hundred dollars on a meal is is the whole ambiance getting served by seventeen waiters and, mm-hmm. and you know just the whole theatrical nature yeah. of the experience yeah. and the presentation, and then giving them into a Tupperware container and giving it to you on by delivery boy on a bicycle is yeah. doesn't yeah, have the same level, <laughs> even if it yeah. could be the exact well, same thing. Yeah, well, it's interesting, right? I think one of the most heartwarming things I saw in the pandemic was people recognizing that support of the industry, support of local restaurants, for example, was a priority. It was right. a value in That's the community. Yeah. And and so the entanglement of memory with food is that, you know, people remembered like their great experiences that were given to them like a gift from these restaurants. And they remembered that in order for that restaurant to survive, they would still need to be a patron in that time frame of crisis. And so I think people did buy as much as they could from the normal places that they used to frequent. And I, you know, I, I have to say, like, I really appreciated that about the community um, so that you can still have the, the options once everybody's vaccinated and things open up fully again. Thanks for listening to this podcast. As you may have noticed, it is a six-part series now instead of a four-part series with Rafina. We talked for about two hours, and I thought it would be more interesting to just break it up into these smaller, bite-sized chunks that might be a little bit more digestible for people. Some people just don't have the inclination to listen to a two-and-a-half-hour episode. That's number one. Number two, I wanted to mention something I didn't have a chance to mention in this particular episode. If you remember that clip that I took from KQED's forum where that woman was talking about how the restaurant industry and the food industry shows how sexist and racist our country is. And one of the things I forgot to mention is I just think that that's bullshit. I just don't think that we should always take any issue where certain groups are making less than others and just quickly assume that it is racial or driven by sexism. 
I know that temptation is very strong under woke ideology, that whenever there's a disparity, we always have to attribute it to racism or sexism or homophobia or whatever. But I think sometimes we ought to not jump to that conclusion so quickly. Because ultimately, whenever you take any data, you're eventually going to notice group differences. Always. You're going to notice that Russian Americans, people of Russian descent, score higher than or, or than people of Bulgarian descent. And does that mean that there's xenophobia against Bulgarians and there's something systemically wrong there? Not always and not necessarily. And so I think we ought to be careful about that. And specifically with the restaurant industry, she's talking about the fact that it's founded on slavery and that black people were serving white people and and therefore it was abuse from the start and it's abuse until today and most servers are women and so they're the ones who are getting screwed and I didn't go as directly as I'm saying it now in the podcast I was telling Rufina that I thought that people who are servers in the industry are actually getting paid a bit better than a lot of other industries and if you're going to look for the poorest paid people in society I wouldn't look necessarily at the restaurant industry to find them. I'm not sure exactly the statistics, but I just know too many of my friends who have been waiters who make decent money, you know, compared to other people that I know that really are struggling a lot harder. If you look on an hourly basis, they're actually, when you include tips, doing okay. They're not rich by any stretch of the imagination, but they are not struggling as much as other segments. And that was kind of my point. And so, therefore, to jump to that conclusion that there's sexism or racism built into this and we need to rectify all that, I just think we're seeing a demon where there is no demon. But tell me what you guys think. Do you think I'm full of it? Go ahead and make a comment. Go to wanderlearn.com and click on the latest episode, or you can send me an email at ft at francistapon.com. Don't forget to become a patron at patreon.com slash ftapon, and also to subscribe to my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Thank you again for your support.